0: This is the Futures Heritage Podcast. My name is Anki Petersen.
1: And I'm Robin Hoeks. And we are your hosts.
0: In this episode of the Futures Heritage Podcast, we are talking with Jeroen van Dijk, or Jeroen van Dijk, for the international friends, who comes from the Netherlands, but actually lives and works in London town. So from the sunny island of Cyprus, we are back in the cold and rainy northwest of Europe, Of course, we get our sunshine from this podcast and from talking with Jeroen about his life, his ideas about the cultural heritage field, and his work as an art historian. He is also a marketing and campaigns manager at Bishopsgate Institute, an independent cultural center in London with a library, historical archives, an institute that organizes talks, discussions, exhibitions, and so on, on wide-ranging topics related to London's history, such as activism, feminism, LGBTQ plus history and socialism. The last one I'm specifically excited about, socialist history. <laughs> socialism. You're planning
1: the socialist revolution, aren't you? Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, don't, don't tell anyone.
1: Uh, but first... old
0: news. In this
1: segment, we look at what European heritage news caught our eye. Um, Anki, did you see anything interesting? in the field of heritage this week?
0: Yes, I did. So it was a bit of a hectic week in the cultural heritage world uh, as one of the biggest attacks on art and antiquities in post-war German history took place in Berlin. At least 70 artifacts were sprayed with an oily liquid on Berlin's Museum Island, uh, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site that is home to five of Berlin's most famous museums. So some some disturbing news. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I remember seeing this. It was really weird. An oily substance on some very old, or a lot of very old artifacts, in fact.
0: Yeah, basically, uh, vandals attacked about 70 artworks in Berlin's museums in broad daylight. And it appears that uh, commentators are linking it to uh, far-right conspiracy theorists. So, So the plot thickens. And few details have uh, been uncovered about the motivations of the Vandals yet, but German reports have highlighted uh, social media messages from one specific guy named Attila Hildmann in August, in which he made uh, some claims about nighttime practices surrounding the Pergamon altar.
1: Yeah, I remember also seeing something that he or the attackers allegedly took their inspiration from a specific section of the Bible, in which was referred to the Pergamon altar as the Throne of Satan, I think. There's a a section in, I think it's Revelations, which references a throne of Satan in the city of Pergamon, in a letter. But we actually don't really know whether that's the Pergamon altar or not. And it seems that it was kind of, that idea might have been kind of motivation for the attacks, I guess. Really odd.
0: I guess, indeed. It's it's really, I, I have never seen something like this before.
1: Especially because you kind of, for something like the Pergamon Altar, you expect some kind of activism on the fact that it's in Germany and not in Turkey, uh, uh, in terms of repatriation and stuff. But that's actually not what this is. So that's interesting.
0: Yeah. And also the the idea that museums sometimes... Claim that it's much more safer in, mm. in Western, uh, in in Western Europe or, or the Western world to to keep these artifacts, but um, well, this week's news has proven them wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something you also often heard about, like stuff that was taken in the nineteenth century to uh, some Western European museum. It was weird. It's be it will be interesting to see how this story develops.
0: Yeah, yeah, and indeed.
1: Whether we find out anything more, and hopefully. Whether we can clean it, or the specialists can clean it.
0: Well, we, we will see. Um, I, I guess we will hear about this in the upcoming weeks, as the plot unravels.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So, so far for old news.
0: So, let's get into our conversation with Jerome... Hi, Jeroen. We are very happy to have you here in our third episode already of the Futures Heritage Podcast.
2: Yes, thank Welcome. you. Thank you. I'm very happy as well. This is my first podcast, so um, <laughs> it's all new to me. Um, it's very exciting, yes.
1: It's very much like a regular Skype conversation. It is. It is. It's a good old chat. <laughs> yeah. exactly. 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 To start, can you tell us something about yourself? Uh, we yeah. heard the introduction Anki a, a bit what you do, but... Yes, thank you so much for
2: the introduction. So, my name is Jerome van Dijk, and I'm an architectural history and heritage professional based in London. I've moved here from Amsterdam, where I studied art history, mostly focusing on architectural history. And in Amsterdam, I also helped with the organization of Amsterdam Open House, which is this sort of free European wide event where cities open up buildings that normally aren't open. And we've also organized a wide program of activities. Um, of lectures and of walking tours. I came to London to do a master's in arts and cultural management, and I did research on LGBTQ+ plus perspectives on heritage and on museums. I worked at an architectural design consultancy, and I am now also responsible for the marketing and campaign at Bishopsgate Institute, which has archives focusing on London, on LGBTQ+ plus people, on feminist and women's archives and archives that have to do with the sort of more social heritage and history. And we also recently started with the UK Leather and Fetish Archive. Um, so we have a lot of different things. We also organise dance events with new school, theater performances. But we also run courses on the creative arts and on languages. Um, but we also do yoga and pilates. So it's very wide offer. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, we do loads nice. of things. Nice. And besides that, I also focus on LGBTQ plus perspectives on architecture and the built environment. So I do research for the Society of Architectural Historians of Great Britain, which is quite a long name, and for a charity called Queer Britain, um, which is working on opening the first LGBTQ plus museum in the UK. Besides all that, I basically love nothing more than sort of discovering new spaces in London um, and sort of learning more about how LGBTQ plus people in the past have used their surroundings and have left their mark on space, on cities, uh, on buildings, and on heritage, I guess. That's me. Oh,
0: wow. That's really a handful of things that you're doing there. Uh, I also noticed that you have your own Twitter feed, right? On on LGBTQ plus, yeah. uh, uh, the history, kind of, sort of urban history focused.
2: It is, yeah. It's mainly focused on London. It's something that really came out of my master's thesis or dissertation. Uh, haven't really been active for a couple of months now. I think my last post was in February, so might have to do with lockdown. I don't know. But do have a look. There are some good stories on that. It's Queer Heritage uh, on Twitter.
0: Nice. So you, you moved to London uh, first for your Erasmus and then for your Masters, right?
2: That's correct, yeah. I first moved in 2017 for uh, an Erasmus exchange um, in history, undergrad at Goldsmiths University in Southeast London. So I was here for four months. I went back to Amsterdam to sort of finish my undergrad dissertation in art history did another year of organizing Emerson Open House, and then I moved to London, and I'm here since So that's two years now. Yeah.
0: Nice. Oh wow. And and what was it about London uh, that made you think like this is the place for me? I want to to spend my next uh, couple of years, or maybe maybe lifetime. That I mean, you don't know.
1: That's a great question. But I really want to know as well because I did part of my masters in uh, in London a couple of months. So I I think I can kind of relate. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. I think it's
2: such a rich city when it comes to heritage, when it comes to the arts, when it comes to museums. I mean, there's so much here. And I also feel like it's really carried by the people living in London. I mean, the arts are such um, an important part of our well-being here. And it's really like a sort of thriving thing in society which of course, the government now is not really acknowledging or not really putting enough funding towards these important organisations. But it's really like groundbreaking work that's been done in London. So it's just really exciting. And I discover something new every week, if not every day. So yeah, I think that's the main reason why I love it so much and definitely want to stay for the I don't know, for the foreseeable future. Don't know if I want to stay over the rest of my life, but definitely for a couple more years.
1: Cool. Yeah, it's really eclectic. That's what I remember as well. Like, there's basically every subject you can find in the same city, which, you know, helps that the city is just massive. But, uh, yeah, just very... I can really relate to that, yeah. (laughs) We have a question from Antigone as well, from our, our last guest. And she was really curious for the next guest to... Tell us a bit about how your work impacts current societies or communities. Now, having heard what what the things you do are, I can kind of imagine. <laughs> yeah. But could you elaborate on it? It's really because I have the feeling it's really kind of also activism focused. If I'm, if I may say so.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I think it's definitely something that drives me personally. Sort of, I know accommodating this impact that heritage culture and history can have on societies and on sort of local communities or sort of wider communities um, as a concept because we have so many archives and so many sort of collections from all these different types of people and all these different types of groups it really enables these people to have a home for their history which is accessible to everyone which is difficult during lockdown of course but before, basically anyone could come in at any time asking, I want to see this object, or I want to know more about LGBTQ plus life in the early sixties in, I don't know, South London. And then we would just bring it up for them. So they didn't have to make any appointments, they didn't have to show any identification. It's very low key and building on those archive materials we also run courses so we do loads of courses on the history of london uh, especially the east end which is the more historically working class area of mm. london with all the factories um, it's also where i list. and we use all these materials from the archives so people can actually hold them um, and sort of learn with the archival material and therefore learn about themselves about each other and i think That has a really big impact on society.
0: And I think what you say about also focusing on the accessibility is is so important here, because it's often overlooked that it really has an impact if you are studying history and you need to show your ID for everything and these kinds of barriers that are being put up Uh, for people to have access to their own history. Uh, I think this this institute sounds amazing in in the work that they do for these kinds of communities and and especially the way in which this institute works. I don't know if you know if there is any, um, well, similar institute in Europe uh, that is comparable to Bishopsgate?
2: I I do know that in Amsterdam there's the IH, L-I-A, which I don't know how to pronounce as an abbreviation. I, I, um, I'm not sure, yeah. which is also the sort of social history heritage archive with a big LGBTQ plus collection as well. I think they're based in the east of Amsterdam. I think that would be a comparable organisation.
1: Yeah. And yeah, maybe as well, uh, n- not in terms of direct subject matter, but in terms of like idea, the, something like the Black Archive, for example, in Amsterdam as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As being also really, they are re- also really an activist organization.
0: And grassroots.
1: Yeah, grassroots and like local uh, history, uh, which quickly becomes like international history, of course, as well. And also people who have traditionally not been in power.
2: Yeah, no, um, I think that's definitely something that really drives me as a heritage professional sort of really focusing on this connection between objects or items and people because I think it's just such a shame that if this is like really good item or really good collection just I don't know, collect stuff in a dark basement and I think our focus for heritage professionals should be on that sort of interpersonal connection because that can also drive further connections between, like people themselves. If they have something to talk about, if they have like shared ideas about their history mm. or they're learning more about each other, I think that's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. We talked before about uh, different lockdown situations in the UK and in the Netherlands, and I'm uh, curious about um, how has 2020 been treating you basically Uh, and and especially in relation uh, to your work has there been uh, significant changes in your work during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic I can imagine uh, that accessibility has been an issue but um, yeah can you tell us something about how the pandemic has influenced your day-to-day life
2: yeah so in the UK the pandemic has been quite intense as you might know we were in sort of total lockdown for for the end of March, April. So we've all been working from home. I'm still working from home. Uh, The archives and the building, they were closed for a couple of months. We've slowly reopened since July, August onwards.
0: And also the public events, did they go online or uh, did they shut down completely?
2: Yeah, so we've moved our learning offer online So all those courses on London history, but also languages. We're also doing a course on podcasting, actually. From oh, nice. Um, <laughs> Can we join? Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. Please join. Marketing, as you know. But yeah, we haven't really been able to do any bigger events. Um, we've just started doing our three lunchtime concerts again. So every Friday lunchtime, we do a concert in the big hall which has been a tradition since the Second World War, which is
1: a whole other story. Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, yeah. Heritage in itself. (laughs) Yeah. Heritage in itself, yeah. So we've been able to sort of do that again since October. So that's happening every Friday now. It actually just happened today, and we're live streaming that on Facebook. That's all going really well.
1: I was wondering um, you talked about also the um, digital stuff you're doing and you're live streaming the lunch concerts every Friday. Was that something you started doing because of the pandemic, or was it something you had planned or you were doing before? Uh, has that changed?
2: That is definitely something we've started doing because of the pandemic. It, it was also our first ever live stream, mm. also my first ever live stream, personally. <laughs> So, quite nervous, mm. but it all went well and it was definitely sort of reinventing the wheel back in April of moving all of our courses online via Zoom. But yeah, it's been going really well and we've had great feedback and it's really interesting to sort of see that these audiences are still interested in, I don't know, learning from home because we've all been, or like most people have been working from home for, for a couple of months mm. now, but that's that sort of, and the sort of drive is still there. That's quite interesting to
1: see. Yeah, it it must be comforting to see that that kind of the the, the audience carries o- carries over into the uh, into the digital world, so to say. Yeah,
0: yeah. But is this uh, something you know the digitization of your activities can that also be seen as something like a positive improvement? Something that maybe would be combined in the future alongside real life events? Because it, of course, it, it kind of adds a layer of accessibility um, it could be, when yeah. done right.
2: It could be, yeah. I do feel like that there's such a power behind coming together and learning something collectively. Also, just social contact in person is completely different than via Zoom, or at least I found that it was sometimes quite difficult to, I don't know, make a joke or, I don't know, talk about something lighthearted.
1: Mm.
2: Um, I do feel like this sort of digital um, activity will leave a mark, definitely. But um, yeah, I think it's just something for the future. Yeah, to see how it's all going um, and when we, yeah, and I don't know when we're able to go back to the building again.
1: And hopefully it can be, like, an extra layer of accessibility on top of, like, the physical and the... Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, yeah. And it's something um, we are definitely focusing on now, but we've also always been, I guess, sort of really, like, putting our archives out there online. So... We are always working on the website. We are always putting out things to share on social media. And we have a massive following now, which is really engaging as well. So people respond with their own stories, which is really lovely to see. It is, in a way, sort of curated because we pick out stuff. So that element of people coming in and wanting to see something for themselves isn't as pronounced anymore, perhaps. But yeah, we're doing as much as we can.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, of course, really difficult this year, um, uh, with, with all the stuff that's going on and, and the pandemic to look into the future, how, uh, this will develop. But, uh, more generally speaking, maybe, how do you see your type of heritage work in the future? Um, for example, with regards to the attention? Uh, that the topics you are addressing the attention that that is getting or maybe um, the government addressing more funding to different types of heritage that are not only about the authorized heritage discourse as we say (laughs) but also about uh, more community focused heritage yeah you see the future of your work changing
2: i do find it really interesting i don't think i can really answer that in the realm of my job, but in my personal work and personal research. I mean, there are so many organizations mm-hmm. that are really looking into these sort of alternative perspectives on heritage now. I mean, they're just quite old fashioned heritage organizations that now like put out content for an LGBTQ history month or a black history month which is really exciting. And I think social media has been one of the main drives behind that, but also in terms of the wider lockdown, I myself have been going out so much more, sort of walking around and learning about the history of my local area, And know, discovering new places. And I think a lot of people have been doing that, which is quite good to see and sort of look up more um, and just go on a walk. and. connected
1: i guess yeah it kind of focuses the attention on the local because that's all you can go yeah uh in a weird way yeah yeah because traveling uh, yeah yeah exactly yeah because otherwise you might go i don't know to stonehenge or the British museum or whatever but if you can't kind of leave your neighborhood or you, you you're not feeling safe on the tube or on buses or whatever on public transport then the the local becomes very much your world, and that's—I mean—that's—I—I I think that's something we all can relate to. I've been walking around a lot, <laughs> especially uh, this uh, this spring. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> My walks were more coffee and and and, and cake motivated than <laughs> than history up until now. But I can. Uh, yeah, it's a good idea to, to maybe rediscover your local heritage while we're still in, in lockdown or semi-lockdown or yeah, yeah. not so much lockdown.
2: That's also, I was very pleased seeing that these open house or like heritage events in September were going through. In Amsterdam, it was more focused on sort of discovering things outside, going a walk yourself. And the same for London. I went on a really long walk um, in East London, and I discovered so many places I've never been to before. And it was a really lovely day,
1: and it was all outside. And... Um, it was really incredible. Yeah, you know. I don't want to deny the importance of coffee and cake walks, by the way. Also, vital importance, of course. Yeah. Apart from uh, apart from the heritage, <laughs>
0: yeah. it is for me. Well, you can combine it here in Utrecht. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you have all these historic uh, little. Uh, Buildings with with coffee shops in them. It's it's not
1: mutually exclusive. Very no, exactly. True, very true.
0: Exactly. That, very that's true. my point.
2: And also, just sort of history and the heritage of beer and of pubs. I mean, that's one of my favorite areas yeah, yeah. when it comes to heritage. Uh, and I think that's one of the best examples how I know heritage can connect people uh, and make yes. people come together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, uh, yeah. I had. Uh, I, I have a small anecdote about this. Um, this summer, there was at one point this uh, message in the news about uh, nuns in the south of the Netherlands in Oosterhout. It's near breda. And uh, they usually make wine for for companies. Uh, I think KLM was one of the companies that orders wine with them. But, of course, all the orders were canceled this year. So they now had, all of a sudden, had 20,000 bottles of wine <laughs> uh, surplus. So so they, they were uh, kind of, um, uh, well, they were in need of, of selling these bottles. So I ordered a box. Uh, I was at the same time sponsoring them uh, and the upkeep of their monastery, so heritage uh-huh. and good wine.
1: I was gonna say that that was delivered during our last recording, so <laughs> <laughs> people don't know that.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah,
1: and, but, but as you said, it's I can imagine like history of pubs and 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 kind of community centers i guess i mean not in the kind of formal sense but in the in the sense of a place where people come together and uh talk with their neighbors basically is a is a really important thing to see and recognize i guess as as heritage as well um, yeah as places that have always been important or, th- or things that have always been important throughout history and-
2: yeah and i think that's something i wanted to mention during this podcast like what i find really interesting is the lack of evidence of these sort of social meetings of importance um, in the past, in mm. in these public spaces. So I do know, often you would see when you go to an old pub in London, there's like a plaque which basically says this pub was erected in the 19th century and this was the councillor that left the first stone and it was opened by this prince uh, or this person. But then it doesn't mention that that pub was actually the meeting place of, I don't know, the sort of movement uh, on voting rights in the 1850s, yeah. which is perhaps more interesting than knowing who designed exactly. it or, or in what yeah. year it exactly <laughs> opened. So why don't we focus
1: on yeah. that? It's kind of the unheard voices uh, of history, basically. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of yeah. things.
0: Yeah, or, or the invisible parts of history that are mm. super important, uh, which you notice, especially when all these kinds of meeting places are now kind of eliminated from daily life. Well, in different countries, in different ways, of course, with with different types of lockdown. But I think it is definitely the things that I have missed the most is going out for drinks or for dinner, with people, or going to meetings yeah. about political topics, or cultural topics, or whatever, with people that I don't know, uh, that I don't see in on a daily basis, um, just these kinds of encounters that are now, uh, well, just limited to, to the space of your own house.
2: Yeah, and I think that's where sort of the online world comes in, and Instagram other social media, that that sort of enables us to learn more about these spaces, because they don't necessarily have that information on their walls. So I know like that's how mm. I find out that, I know, Lenin met Stalin at a certain pub in London, <laughs> yeah. um, which doesn't say it, like when you go there, but it's online. So I think that's, that's the power.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Definitely. It, it kind of also, it, it, it sounds very similar to what Antigone was talking about uh, in our last episode when she was talking about her project Nicosia Photo Walks. Yeah, yeah. About how she uses the kind of the urban history, the architectural history of her city to connect people through the history. Would you like to do uh, like guided tours through London?
2: Uh, I have so many to these to kinds of places, <laughs> I think it would take <laughs> yes. hours and
1: hours and hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just the general history of London would take hours. Even the local yes, history, Robin. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> well, no, 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 I mean, yeah. just, like, just the kings and queens would take oh, hours alone, yeah. like, the massive, like the masses un- underneath, so to say.
2: Yeah. yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think that's also one of the most beautiful aspects of these heritage events, that they are really driven and really run by so many volunteers that just give their free time this one weekend mm. to actually show these people around, um, and I know, tell them things that they're passionate about and also they form their own family like they make friends like through their um i don't know through their volunteering um which is really exciting i think that's really powerful
1: yeah yeah it's amazing that then you also have a like a a really engaged online community because hopefully the same can happen there hopefully in the future next to uh the the in-person meetings but now uh kind of in place of the in-person meetings that this community can still kind of exist and interact with each other and get to know each other online or uh, like reacting to posts or, or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah, 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 no, I agree. Of course, we we have uh, met you during Futures Heritage uh, event in a European setting, and of course, we are now not uh, able to travel. So all these international heritage events, they are well, they are either online, which is a different experience, of course, because <laughs> yeah, you just cannot enjoy the environment as much as as we used to. Uh, but are you also engaging in uh, uh, online events, international? Uh, meetings or are you well I, I can also imagine that that is exhausting uh, zooming all day and, and yeah and stuff like that
2: to be completely honest I haven't really I think I've just been really busy over the past couple of months I've also moved houses um, ah, yeah. I'm just working a lot and I'm also doing a lot of sort of more like personal research personally I have quite sort of a zoom fatigue perhaps when it comes to these extra events, so I've been trying to, uh, I don't know, keep it on yeah, a low can, level. Yeah, I
0: can relate.
1: Yeah, <laughs> really recognizable. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, if you look at your sector and the cultural heritage sector, so to say, if you can really talk about such a such a thing, because it's of course super broad with archaeology, archives, monuments, uh, social history, everything. Would you like to see some changes in the way in which the heritage sector works? at the current time. Yeah,
2: where do I begin? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that what I find in the sort of wider heritage sector in Europe, and perhaps beyond, I don't know, but as we sort of mentioned earlier, this focus on design and also the very material of a building, I feel that is the focus most of the time. Sort of the stones are special because of this Mm. and we can't change this pavement because it's in a conservation area. So of this focus on this heritage conservation, which I think, I think my, I don't know, I think my question would be how, like how can we combine that part with the social history that these locations hold? and are perhaps more important to the local people that live there and then it comes to who work in the wider heritage sector because these people they focus on that heritage conservation and i feel a lot of these powerful groups they quite sort of hold that power perhaps because it's quite an academic thing right Mm -hmm like the history of of stones and the history of buildings, the history of design, why something looks the way it does. And I just feel like that one of the most important ways of inserting this social heritage in our notion of our own history and of heritage as a whole is to include these local communities in that sort of decision making and in those organizations themselves which as you both know is quite a difficult subject for organizations like that because often they have a very specific demographic I won't like name any specifically but I think that's one of the biggest challenges and for me that's that is one of the most important things that I think, are all
1: for change, yeah. So it's kind of the, the, the engagement of new audiences, but then not only like kind of engaging them to quote-unquote classical heritage, but also having them kind of bring their own heritage, I guess, uh, or add their own heritage. Yeah, and also just make the heritage education
2: accessible to mm-hmm. everyone. So these heritage yeah. organizations, yeah. they will reflect society in a way, it's like both bottom up, but also
1: top down. It's a really uh, positive thing to strive for, but what I'm, re- I'm really curious, and it's a bit of a, it's a question that's been on my mind as well, because in my kind of day job, I try to do the same thing. You can try to get more and more new audiences with kind of their own heritage into, into the heritage sector or on the radar of organizations where they, who might not know them, or they might not know the organization. I also kind of experience a kind of, I don't know, ma- a bit of a scary uh, scare for kind of the label heritage, if you know what I mean. Like her- there's a uh, this preconceived idea for, for people who don't work with heritage or engage with heritage on a day-to-day basis of what is heritage and what they have isn't heritage and that kind of scares them away, even though we might say, yeah, but yeah, that is heritage.
2: Yeah, I think that sort of juxtaposition, because I do feel like everyone deals with heritage, but it's just that, uh, like, the sort of heritage organisations that focus on the conservation of buildings is quite a specific group, which I don't even feel part of. So, you know, how can we get everyday people or or sort of a wide variety uh, or, like, a good reflection of the society that we live in to sort of make heritage decisions. And when we get on that level, I don't think we can talk about label heritage anymore, sort of, because it is, Mm. yeah, it is genuine. And the expertise is there, I think, when we have uh, a more diverse heritage body, in general.
0: I think it's also an issue um, about power dynamics and institutions that maybe are quite hesitant to give away uh, the power that they possess uh, when it comes to heritage. I mean we, we have institutions in which uh, cultural heritage professionals, and I'm using air quotes for the listeners, are uh, working. And and of course, these people, they they are educated and they have expertise. But the idea that just any citizen can be an expert in their own right is something that still, um, well, still a lot of institutions are not very comfortable with.
2: Exactly, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's also what I was saying earlier. Like, why do we focus on this academic I know, frame or academic perspective on the building environment. I mean, what I find so much more powerful in my personal life is that when someone talks about the building, like, oh, I have worked here for 40 years and I had my yeah. lunch on that step every morning, or in this building was the home of, I don't know, this like socialist group in the 19th century, Um, which is storytelling. And Everyone can do that. You don't need a degree for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in a sense, it's also kind of telling the people who tell those kinds of stories, but might not necessarily realize it as being important to history or important to heritage that it is. It exactly. actually is. And it's exactly. part, of the, uh, part of the history of the building or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. yeah. And
2: that's something I would like to change. And well, I guess that's, I think, um, a goal in my,
1: in my personal life. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's definitely something to see more of, hopefully, in the future.
0: Do you already see some changes towards that? I mean, a lot of institutions, at least in the Netherlands, I can say, are talking about uh, citizen participation in cultural heritage. And maybe the way this is done, uh, well, still needs some work here and there. Uh, But do you see uh, a tendency towards that change?
2: I think definitely. There are loads of organizations that are doing great work and also other organizations. They're really opening up Like, as you say, the sort of curatorial processes when it comes to co-creation or audience consultation. And just, I think, hiring processes in general are becoming much more inclusive
1: of everyone. That might be one of the most important factors, I guess. Just the people with the connections in these communities getting into positions of power, basically.
2: Exactly. And it's such, like... It's such a deep rooted thing when it comes to you know working in the cultural sector, especially in london like it's expected that you have years of sort of volunteering experience, mm. but then who can afford to work yeah. for yeah. free for even a year like who like that that's that's already yeah. quite a privilege, or just being able to I don't know, step up to a person in a high position and trying to network. I mean, networking is also a skill that is perhaps passed to you by your parents, which mm-hmm. also relates to privilege and, you know, a certain class that you might come from.
0: When it comes to co creation, I, I think that is also a very important concept that. We need to keep on using in a way in which also kind of, well, genuinely tries to redistribute the power in Mm decision-making. So when an institute is saying, okay, we're going to do some co-creation stuff, then it shouldn't be like, okay, we're going to invite some people to give their opinions and we are going to decide whatever (laughs) we want to do with it. But genuinely, well, first of all, of course, genuinely listen to these people, but also uh, make commitments in terms of time and make commitments in terms of money uh, and, and especially the latter one is still in, 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 well, many cases a problem.
2: Yeah, no, it is very interesting and it's also really interesting to see how so many different organizations are trying to implement these ways of like co-creation or I think an interesting example is the state modern who on, on, on that I don't know which floor it is, the sixth floor, they have this space called State Exchange, which they give for free. I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, this might be uh, a bit incorrect, but I think they give that space for free or for a very little amount of money to a certain community group which applies, and then they can pretty much program whatever they want in there. Um, oh, wow. Which is really cool.
0: Yeah, and that's that's quite novel. I mean, the Tate is a huge museum. Yeah,
2: I mean millions of visitors a year.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. Well, at least some 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 positive developments as well to be seen. Yeah, yeah. I know we talked a, li- a lot about things that should change, and rightly so. I, th- I think <laughs> I, I think I agree on, on basically all of them with you. But uh, it's also good to see that like stuff is actually changing. It's also something, at least I personally ca- kind of take hope out and like know that you can kind of make a difference if you just kind of push hard enough. I guess.
0: Well, and I can also see that. I mean, maybe I'm overgeneralizing this, but a younger generation that is taking these kinds of issues more seriously into consideration in their work. Uh, so that is also something that, uh, makes me hopeful that, well, a new generation of heritage professionals is pushing for this kind of change. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, of course, not, not everyone, but.
2: Yeah, and I just also think that this very podcast, what we're doing now, is such a good example of sort of giving young heritage professionals a voice and also what we did last year in the sort of realms of the Capacity Building days, which was such a powerful week of just people coming together. And it's definitely a new thing. So it's a very positive development.
1: Cool. Well, I'm very curious what your question for, for our next guest is going to be. Yes. Yeah, so well, I, I think we've been talking about this a lot, actually, So my question is, how can heritage organisations
2: organise themselves to reflect the society they serve?
1: That's almost kind of an exam question. I'm, I <laughs> high oh, it's high a, it's expectation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. As <laughs> yeah. we should have, I, I think. But yeah. Still, yeah it's a, it's,
0: we could uh, publish an essay about <laughs> this ourselves.
1: <laughs> we could publish a lot of essays about this.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. Nope. It's really yeah. It, it touches on a lot of things we talked about. Yeah, yeah and I don't yeah.
2: think it's necessarily this question that has to be answered or can be answered like i wouldn't know like a full answer myself but it's it's just that yeah. sort of spark thinking or the or conversation mm-hmm. yeah yeah.
0: yeah. And I think it's also a question uh, that you that you might answer depending of course on, on where you're coming from. Uh, I know a lot about heritage institutions from the Netherlands, uh, working and coming from the Netherlands, but I I have noticed also during this podcast how little I actually know of uh, heritage institutions mm. uh, from other countries uh, even in Europe. It's um yeah, it's it's not something that you really learn or hear about that much. So, also a one up for the podcast to continue. <laughs> Very true.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for your time uh, this afternoon. It's been really interesting. We covered a lot of ground. A lot of marginalized people. Kind of planning the socialist revolution yeah uh, that's as one me he, uh, would yep. want yeah.
2: <laughs> just how i like it <laughs> no this is really brilliant thank you so much uh and i really enjoyed it and i'm looking forward to the next um i don't know couple of podcasts that are coming up definitely
0: this was the futures heritage podcast thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more please subscribe to our podcast channels links can be found in the show notes This podcast is supported by Dutch Culture Center for International Cooperation.